Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast. Because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. Our final salon brought fiction writers Nick Brown, Rebecca Berg, and Nick Arvin to 910 Arts to tackle the question, what's fiction for? Welcome to the third and final Lit Fest 2011 salon. How's it been going so far? Yeah? We missed you all at Praise Be. The, the poetry. Oh, except for Paul. Paul was there. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. So there were a few of you there. Um, and me. I was there. Um, it was fun. So... Thank you for being here tonight. This is the final salon. We have only a few more events before Lip Fest is over. Um, we like to think of, I know it's sad. It's a, I, I have in my notes, pause for tears and crying. Okay. Um, so this has been an amazing Lip Fest. I don't know if you noticed, but it's been our biggest and best ever. Um, I hate to brag, but it really has. Yeah. Um, and I blame you all. So tonight our topic was the brainchild of Rebecca Berg, and it's something I'm kind of obsessed with too. And it's called "What's Fiction for?" This is a question a lot of my acquaintances and family and friends ask me. Um, and I think this is the perfect panel to have to explore this issue. And what we really do is have a conversation. We want you all involved. Um, I'm going to introduce the three panelists, and they're going to they're going to talk a bit, and we're going to open it up to everybody in the audience um, to talk about it too. Because I, I bet you all have feelings on this as well. So I'm just going to introduce these three. We have the full bios in your uh, program, so you can read those. Um, I'll start here because Rebecca Berg was was the one who thought of this. One of my favorite writers on the planet, a fiction writer, a well-trained literature scholar from Cornell. It just seems fun to know somebody who has a PhD from Cornell. Um, The Ivy Leagues were never a possibility for me. Um, so Rebecca Berg, uh, she teaches novel for us. She teaches a lot of different kinds of reading as a writer classes, and she's a student favorite. Um, so Rebecca Berg, first up. If I could ask you each to curtsy after the applause. Um, and we'll go... Now we'll go in alphabetical order with the Knicks. So that, and we don't get past B. Did you guys notice that when I was laying out the program? I thought, surely Nick Brown will be first. No, he's last. Does that ever happen to you? <laughs> um, Nick Arvin, another one of my favorite fiction writers. He's got two books out and one, one out in, in England, but coming out soon called The Reconstructionist. I'm going to be one of the pre-orderers. Are you? Yeah. It's called The Reconstructionist. He also has In the Electric Eden, a collection of stories, which I like to describe as there's not a dog in the bunch, which never happens with collections of short stories, does it? Usually there's one dog. Okay, well, maybe that's just me. Um, and he also wrote the award-winning Articles of War, which was a one-book, one-Denver pick a couple years ago, wasn't it? 
Yeah, and, and all of, th this is on sale on the back table, just in case you're wondering what the back table's about. That's what the back table's about. Um, and Nick Brown is new to Lighthouse, thanks to Marie Kaufman. Where are you, Marie? Ugh. She, she started this all, and we're not going to let Nick Brown go. Um, he, he taught the short story breakthrough intensive. I'm very excited to, to purchase his books. There aren't very many on sale back there, so nobody go buy one before I do, because um, he's got flood markers and doubles. One is a collection of short stories, and the other is a novel. He teaches up at UNC, and we're very pleased to invite him here tonight. So our three panelists, thank you for being here. <laughs> So in the war room before this panel, we met five times to discuss this topic. And one of the, the topics that kept coming up is inflection. What is fiction for? What is fiction for? What's fiction for? And what's fiction for? <laughs> Thanks, Andrea. So um, we're going to start with Rebecca, and we're going to take that last one. What's fiction for? No. What, what's fiction for? I mean, we're, we're supposedly living in an age of nonfiction, reality hunger and all that. Uh, reality TV, that's all we hear about. Real life is more interesting than fiction, right, you guys? Um, okay, so um, I'm going to talk about reality hunger in a minute because the book um, really sort of gelled some things for me, mainly in sort of... It was a somewhat antagonistic feeling I had reading the book. <laughs> um, but, but I wanted to start by saying that this topic has been on my mind for a long time, and I realized when I started thinking about it for tonight that it really goes back to about 1998 um, when my first agent told me, well, you're going to have a really hard time. Um, and she said two things, that your voice is uh, a little off. And also, um, the market's really hard, and everything's all memoir now. Um, and those... Um, actually, what she said, um, but I'm, she said everything's all boring memoirs right now, but I, I, I don't think that's true. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't want to say that. So, um, but anyway, that's what she said, and she was right. Um, so I was still thinking about it, oh, maybe four, five years ago, 2007, I was talking to a friend of mine who's in music and doesn't think about literature that much. Um, and this was two, th two novels later, um, two unpublished novels later, and I was sort of trying to explain to her the shape of my life um, and why. <laughs> and, she's, and, and I said, well, everything's all memoir now. Um, and she said, well, that's because if it's true, it's better. Um, yeah. <laughs> that hurt me. <laughs> um, yeah, she, she was a tough audience. So, um, Anyway, um, I, so I really started thinking then, and I, and I was sort of sitting there in my kind of semi-defensive way thinking, well, is this just because, I, does this, do I really feel that she's wrong because it's just going against my interests? I, you know, I write fiction, so of course I don't want to think it's better if it's true. Um, and then... I started thinking, no, 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 and sort of spluttering mentally and thinking, no, something really big is getting lost here. Um, and, and actually, we're in a really weird place to even be thinking that 
I, I just think it's kind of weird that we're sitting here having to defend the idea of making up stories, which is something that has been done for millennia. Um, so so um, I started thinking about what, I mean, I sort of tried to articulate a little bit for myself. Um, and one thing I thought was that, you know, the act of sitting down to read a story that you know is made up puts your I mean, it puts your mind in a really interesting place. I mean, you're holding two opposing things in your mind at once. You're saying, I know this is fiction. And you're also saying, um, I'm entering into this fictional world and I'm going to invest in it enough to believe in it while I'm reading it, even though I know it's not true. That's a complicated state of mind. That's, that's something like, I don't think my cats can do that. I don't think, other, I don't think really any other species except human beings do that. Um, so I guess human, so part of that is just that that's, fiction is for that. I mean, we need to be able to do that. Um, so um, I was still mulling this topic over when um, Reality Hunger came out last year, 2010. Um, and... I don't want to. I don't want to set up a straw man here. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, the book has. I, I mean, you on first sort of cursory read, it really looks like it's say, saying, well, you know, fiction writers get over it. That's not what they're wearing anymore. Kind of. I mean, it really seemed to me to be saying, you know, it's out of style. You know, I mean, just another take on the novel is dead. Um, but I think there's more going on than that in the book. Um, and that's why I think it's actually interesting for fiction readers. It's just painful. Um, so um, what I wanted to do is just to... I don't, how many people have seen that book or read it or heard of it? Um, I'm, I'm really glad to see that it's not like hugely popular in this group. <laughs> um, anyway, I was going to just to give you an idea of what the thrust there is that I'm sort of saying no to. Um, I've, I'm going to read you a few passages from it, and uh, just to give you context, the way the book is set up, it's just an, a set of sort of numbered assertions or statements. It's sort of, it's presenting itself as a manifesto, and some of these statements are not the author's own. They're quotes, and they're not identified as that, although if you look in the back, you can sort of get a sense there's, a, there's something like a bibliography in the back, and you can sort of match things up, sort of. Um, so, Anyway, so he, so there are these statements, and they're very provocative, and you know, um, they make you hurt. So, <laughs> um, so the first one: living as we do in a manufactured and artificial world, we yearn for the real semblance of semblances of the real. And already, I think it's interesting that he makes that distinction: that what we really want is the trappings of reality. Um, we want to pose something non-fictional against all the fabrication, autobiographical frissons, or framed, or filmed, or caught moments that, in their seeming unrehearsedness, possess at least the possibility of breaking through the clutter. More invention, more fabrication aren't going to do this. I doubt very much that I'm the only person who's finding it more and more difficult to want to read or write novels. Um, ow. <laughs> um, so, um, okay. I mean, I think there are a lot of people who want to read novels. <laughs> but um, I, he then says, I, a little ways on, I find nearly all the moves of the traditional novel make, that the traditional novel makes unbelievably predictable. 
tired, contrived, and essentially purposeless. I'm drawn to literature instead as a form of thinking, consciousness, wisdom seeking. I like work that's focused not only page by page, but line by line on what the writer really cares about, rather than hoping that what the writer cares about will somehow mysteriously creep through the cracks of narrative, which is the way I experience most stories and novels. Um, and so, okay, so now I started getting kind of interested because um, I have that frustration sometimes as a fiction writer. There's, I have something on my mind. My, I, I'm not completely pure, you know, when I sit down. It's not, I don't really, it's like, you know, my characters lead me and I have no idea where the story's going and I, I, you know, they come alive and they tell me where to go. I mean, you know, on a good day, there might be a shadow of that happening, but basically when I come to fiction, I do have some stuff on my mind and I have something like an agenda. Um, and I've always felt a little guilty about that. Um, and I've always felt kind of frustrated because I feel like fiction is the best way to get at the stuff I want to get, and yet I also feel that I'm trying to kind of, well, what he says, sort of sneak it in there. <laughs> um, so, okay, so that, that I found that interesting. Um, he then says, and he's actually, I think, quoting John Gardner here. Someone once said to me, quoting someone or other, discursive thought is not fiction's most efficient tool. The interaction of characters is everything. This is when I knew I wasn't a fiction writer, because discursive thought is what I read and write for. Um, and that's interesting, too, because I think that might even be true for me. Um, and I'm a fiction writer. Um, but... I, you know, there's something about the formulation here that was bugging me, this idea that there's this little nugget in there and that you want just the nugget. Um, so I'm going to leave that for a moment and come back to it. Um, okay, and then he, fi he says finally, the world exists. Why recreate it? I want to think about it, try to understand it. What I am is a wisdom junkie, knowing all along that wisdom is, in many ways, junk. I want a literature built entirely out of contemplation and revelation. Who cares about anything else? Um, and I think that's supposed to be a rhetorical question. <laughs> um, and I sort of agreed with that, too. Um, although um, a literature built entirely out of contemplation and revelation just goes straight to the good parts, you know. Um, so... I mean, when you put all that together, what you come up with, and this is what I think I've been sort of feeling from my friends who say, well, it's better because it's real in some way or other, or, you know, we don't really need fiction anymore, is we have memoir. Um, we all know, if, you know, if we're in the know, that nonfiction is fiction, too, because it's made up or it's, it's shaped, it, it's, in, it's invented, as much speculative stuff goes into that as to anything else. So why do we need something that's specifically called fiction, especially if people want the trappings of nonfiction? Just call it nonfiction and then do whatever you want. Um, <laughs> which actually somebody in his book actually says that. I, I think he quotes Ben Marcus saying that. Um, so... Um, Okay, but I felt I still felt felt like something big was being missed. That it's important, and maybe it's that idea that you're sitting down to write or to read something that you know is not true. Um, and um, the other thing I think it's happening a little bit is when he talks about you know the sort of predictable moves and the narrative structure of of um, the the techniques and the technology of fiction that we have now. Um, and it's, he's right; it's highly developed, <laughs> um, and it can be taught 
and it can be learned and it's become something that is more a craft than an art maybe and um, I guess then you might say well we're ready we're ready to sort of maybe try something new or break out of some molds or push things a little bit and maybe the way that happens is that nonfiction now becomes the new fiction um, the problem I have with that is that I think um, fiction is bigger than the techniques our current conventions and standards for fiction writing. What we what we think of now as fiction, you know, how you handle backstory, you know, how you develop a character, um, th th how you hide your little contemplative moments, <laughs> how you work in the, the discursive thoughts that you have. All those things um, are very particular to our time and place. I mean, even, you know, I mean, novels being written in other countries are different. Um, and so I, I really think it's a mistake to think that fiction is dead because that's all it consists of. And I, I do think, you know, if the moves are getting predictable, then maybe fiction, it's time for fiction to bust some bonds, but, but not necessarily to give it up. So, okay, so that's where I'm coming from. And I thought um, I would start with that idea that there's some assumptions in the way we currently think about fiction um, that are making fiction writers and the genre as a whole vulnerable to this kind of, I guess I'll say, attack. Um, and um, so what I wanted to do is just juxtapose uh, two really big writers' ideas about what fiction is for. Um, and um, I guess the way I'm setting this up, I kind of have a favorite <laughs> of the two, but I do think they're, bo they're both, they're both um, really powerful ideas. Um, so the first is Ernest Hemingway, and this is from a letter he wrote um, to a friend. You know that fiction, prose rather, is possibly the roughest trade of all in writing. You do not have the reference, the old important reference. You have the sheet of blank paper, the pencil, and the obligation to invent truer than things can be true. You have to take what is not palpable and make it completely palpable and also have it seem normal and so that it can become a part of ex the experience of the person who reads it. Um, and uh, there would be a, actually, I mean, I guess you could read that statement in a few ways. The way I take it is a statement, is a synthetic statement of, re of the, sort of the realist camp of fiction writing. I mean, that what fiction is for is to is verisimilitude, is to make things as true as possible, to capture life. Um, how things are or how things were, I mean, if, you know, historical fiction has always been a little bit suspect, <laughs> but um, basically how things are, how things were. Um, and that, and it coming out, maybe this is where our idea, you know, that you write what you know comes from a little bit. You know, you, you take the thing that you can make truest and tell it um, and change it slightly. Um, okay, so my, the, the, the view of what fiction is for that I want to put against that, um, and I really love this. When I, when I first ran across this idea in that notorious graduate school, <laughs> um, it really, it was kind of like, I thought, oh yeah, why did I never think of that? Um, but I hadn't thought of it until it had been sort of pointed at for me. And I think that's telling, because I think it's not part of our, it's not part of the 
um, atmosphere for us in, in this country, in this genre. Anyway, um, so this is Mario Vargas Llosa. Um, and this is, he wrote this actually in 19, I think in 1982, it appeared in an essay in the New York Times. Novels aren't written to recount life, but to transform it by adding something to it. All novelists, more or less crudely, more or less explicitly, and also more or less consciously, remake reality, embellishing it or diminishing it. Um, so that um, the fact that it's not nonfiction is a feature, not a bug. <laughs> um, for um, Vargas Llosa, though, I mean, he's still talking about truth here. He says it captures a truth, but he's talking about a very particular what he calls a very curious truth, which can only be expressed in veiled and concealed fashion, masquerading as what it is not. And then that truth that he thinks fiction is about, um, he says men, <laughs> men are not content with their lot, and nearly all, rich or poor, brilliant or mediocre, famous or obscure, would like to have a life different from the one they lead. To cunningly appease this appetite, fiction was born. It is written and read to provide human beings with lives they're unresigned to not having. Um, and for me, this was really key. I mean, for me, this is a key impetus. This is why I read books fanatically as a kid. It's why I decided to write novels um, instead of making money. <laughs> um, and um, I think, th and then the, the one last thing I want to quote from him that I think it really captures it, it, the germ of the truth here for me is, um, the germ of every novel contains an element of non-resignation and desire. Um, and so it's a restless genre. It's a genre that really um, is about saying, no, the way things are isn't necessarily the way things have to be. I'm asserting my ability either as a reader or a writer to imagine, I, I mean, and, and this is not necessarily a, um, a knock on um, realism per se, because you shift reality ever so slightly, even writing a realist novel. Um, you do the same thing that we say nonfiction writer. You select, you emphasize, um, and so you are remaking reality in a way um, to somehow imagine a world that comes closer to matching your desires or expressing them in some way than you can do in reality. Um, so um, for me, the act of reading, the act of writing, fiction specifically, is a kind of defiance. Um, and um, the one last, one last thing I'm going to just leave you with this, and I'm going to pass this on because I, I know that the Nick, the Nick and Nick, the two Nicks, <laughs> have some really cool things to say about this. Um, but um, I just want to quote one more person. This is Sven Burkertz, and talking about. Um, the idea that you know you can envision something other than what is. Um, he calls it the inward plunge, giving in to the let there be another kind of world premise. So I'll just leave it with that for now. <laughs> um, there's a lot to think about there. Uh, I guess to just sort of start on a nasty, bitchy little note. <laughs> um, I, about 10 years ago, had uh, a workshop. It was a one-day workshop uh, that David Shields led. David Shields, who wrote Reality Hunger, that 
that got Rebecca all fired up. And um, so I began paying attention to his work around that time. And he, um, that was when he first published an essay that, um, that laid out the ideas that he's, he's eventually expanded into reality hunger about basically that fiction's obsolete. Um, and f so first of all, the, the workshop that he just led, you know, literally like weeks earlier, was a fiction workshop. <laughs> and, and so I was kind of like, well, was he just like lying through his teeth in terms of, you know, his belief that we're doing anything valuable in, in you know, in, in leading this workshop? And then, um, I mean, you know, I, I read the essay, I found it very irritating, and then I went to his, I went to his website, and at that time on his website, he had a page where he had uh, a, book, a list of recommended books, uh, you know, the books that he had loved and that you should read, and at least half of them were novels. And, and since then, I've never, I just, I, I can't take him seriously. Um, <laughs> at least on, I mean, I think he's an excellent writer, but the, you know, clearly fiction means something to him. And, um, you know, my, my sort of impression of that initial essay was that he was, he was sort of taking an idea he had and stating the strongest possible case of it to sort of stir the pot. And maybe at this point he's, he's fully talked himself into it. But <laughs> um, so on, uh, so this, this, this topic, what's, what's fiction for? Um, I guess I'm, I'm going to, for sort of my, my initial comments, I want to I break it into two sections. The first one will title, Let's Not Overthink This. <laughs> the second one will title, What the Hell? Let's Go Ahead and Overthink It. <laughs> um, so under let's, uh, in my, my initial quest to not overthink this, um, I, I went, <laughs> you know, to, so there, there are two things I do these days to answer questions. I'm asking myself, what's fiction for? I go to my son, who's five years old, and he, you know, he has a lot of insight. <laughs> and I asked him, um, he didn't, I, he's, he's a smart kid, but I don't think he knows the word fiction. So I asked him, Cade, what do you think stories are for? And he said, they're for reading. And I was like, that's it. I never would have thought of that. But you're right. That's what they're for. <laughs> and uh, so then I, I said, OK, what do we read stories for? And he said, um, he, he said, we read them because they're fun. And the other thing I did in, in my quest to not overthink it was, and again, faced with a question I need an answer to, I did what we all do now. I Googled it. <laughs> and so I went to Google and I typed in what, and it's interesting, you get a different answer if you type what's fiction for versus what is it's that inflection thing. But I typed in what is fiction for? And I hit, I'm feeling lucky. Um, and what happens when you do that is you get a, um, you get an essay written by someone named Richard Foster in 1961, and the title of the essay is "What Is Fiction For?" And the f the first sentence of the essay is "For delight and instruction, of course, as everyone knows." <laughs> um, delight. <laughs> So that I have two data points. I've got my son who says it's for fun, and I've got the light and instruction. Um, but they're, they're, both, they're both there on delight, basically. Um, 
And then thinking thinking about that, the other—I mean, this is this is a little bit of a tangent, but the other thing that I was thinking about around that is, I mean, the, the adult version of fun is interesting, right? And <laughs> and I was I was thinking about um, when I was at Iowa, there was uh, there was this—they had this cardboard box that was full of um, audio cassette tapes. <laughs> Did you get in those? Yeah. And they, uh, what, what those tapes were, where they would, they, when they brought in um, guest uh, lecturers or guest workshop leaders, um, like I'm sure they did this for, for David Shields when he was there, um, they would record it and then they'd take the cassette and throw it in the box and then you could comb back through. Um, and, you know, there were these phenomenal writers sort of thrown in this box. Um, uh, and one of them that I listened to was Saul Bellow. And um, he, he led a workshop. Um, I remember that Chris Adrian was one of the, the, the students in the workshop, who's, who's a wonderful writer. Um, but there was, there was one of the, the thing that really stayed with me about that, that workshop was um, that there were, there, were, there were sort of these repeated questions to Bellow that he grew increasingly irritated with, I think, um, that sort of had to do with, it was around the idea of how do you, how do you know when something works in fiction? And I think it was, I think it was coming to him in part because, um, you know, a lot of his books, um, you know, they do these things that you're not supposed to do in fiction. Um, uh, I'm thinking of like Herzog, where, um, you know, there's there just all these crazy letters to whoever happens to catch the the uh, uh, the point of view character's attention, and there's there's sort of a nominal plot, but it's really about the letters, which um, you know, it's it's just not what you expect in a traditional narrative, and it's a it's a great, brilliant book. And you know, how does he get away with that? How does he know that that um, um, that that works. How do you how do you know when you're breaking the rules and it's okay? Was kind of what the the students were asking him, and the answer he kept he, the answer he kept giving was the test is is it interesting? It's like that's it's that simple. Is it interesting? And you know they kind of kept asking that question, and you you could hear after a couple times he sort of he was starting to snap at them. Is it interesting? Just ask yourself. Is it interesting? <laughs> Um, and that, so, I mean, to me, that's, you know, I think that's at the, the core of it. What's fiction for? It's, it's to interest people. It's to be fun. It's, um, that's the, the not overthink it answer. Um, so then in my, my quest to overthink it, um, <laughs> I, um, if if I can address a question to um, to be overthought, if I can hand it to Marilyn Robinson, who's a writer I admire um, and who I, I took a class with, um, she will she will surely overthink it for me. That's kind of what she does, and um, and she has a, a great essay. Um, that's basically about the question of what is fiction for. Um, and the, the title of the essay is, um, I want to get this right. It's, you need not doubt what I say, because it is, 
You need not doubt what I say, because it is not true. <laughs> um, and she got that, that line from, um, somehow I had gotten the idea that it was at the beginning of the Greek plays, but she says it's, the, the Latin writers use the word olim um, to, to mean, you need not doubt what I say, because it is not true. And she sort of draws a parallel between that that phrase and um, our own phrase, once upon a time. Um, and in, there, there, there are all sorts of interesting things in that essay. And I'm not sure if it's been published anywhere. I read it in um, the first issue of A Public Space, the journal. Um, and if it hasn't been collected yet, I'm sure it will be eventually. Um, but a couple of the points that she makes in that that essay are um, one is that one of the one of the things you have to recognize about about the nature of language is that it's it's basically impossible to say anything of any complexity without it being partially false, and so it's almost inherent in the nature of language that it would we just to, to acknowledge that, that we would begin to explore it and begin developing an interest in, in fictionalizing. Um, another thing that she says is that um, one, of the, one of the sort of tests of, of sanity is um, your ability to, to recognize that just about everything you believe is a hypothetical that there's that, you know what you what you believe people think of you is a hypothetical um, what you think of other people is a hypothetical you know that it's you you think you know it's the, the classic case you know when you think you know a person that's when they surprise you um, and you know on on into you know our understanding of science and just our, our whole knowledge of the world is premised around hypotheticals, and if you don't if you don't have the the ability to recognize that, then you're you're basically insane. <laughs> um, I mean, it's sort of the the definition of insanity that you you know you fix on an idea and you you can't change those ideas. Um, and and so one of the roles of fiction is to give us a venue and an outlet for exploring that. Um, and you, you th the the example that she gives is is that a lot of the moments that we find the most interesting and the most moving in fiction are those moments when you discover with within the process of a of a story that what you thought you believed was not true, and that um, you know when a when a character in a story surprises you, or or the the very basis of the idea of tragedy, the, the idea that what makes a, a person um, great and strong can be the, the very same characteristic that turns around and um, is is a part of their demise and their downfall. Um, and so these are you know these are qualities that are just inherent in human nature, and that that fiction um, is is this venue for us to to explore. Um, and I think one of the things, one of the things that she she sort of goes from there into is that, um, and I, I think this sort of ties to the 
<laughs> the crisis in fiction, if there is one, um, is the, 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 the ability of, of Americans in general to, to recognize um, the hypothetical quality of our world and the, 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 the need for acknowledging that our beliefs are hypothetical um, has sort of been degraded. And, and that's led to this rise of a sort of um, requirement for you know, facts and, um, and the belief that you can you know, have a certain ideology or a certain set of beliefs and just you, you don't need to change those. Um, that there, there are truths that are immutable. Um, and so when, when, when you reach that, you know, when, as Americans, we've, we've reached that point, then it, it sort of becomes inevitable that, that fiction, which is premised and you know, based in the idea that, that everything is hypothetical, um, then that becomes harder for people to buy into. Um, so I, th I think you should call me Nick A, and you should call this one Nick B. Nick A. <laughs> so Nick A is going to go over to Nick B. All right. So I would get cassette tapes out of that box all the time and would either not listen to them or they wouldn't work because they were cassette tapes. <laughs> I had one from Lori Moore that I listened to all the time that, of course, was hilarious and great. But uh, So I, too, turned to my child when I started thinking about this. Um, and I like the fact that Nick A. mentioned that older essay... I can't remember the name of the guy who wrote it, but who says that, you know, uh, fiction is for delight and instruction. Because <clears throat> at its most basic level, I, too, tried to not overthink the question at first, right? Now, that was fiction for? Well, it's for entertainment, right? In a way. But then the instruction thing, I started thinking about this morning, because Frances, my daughter, spent all morning repeating what I say to her when she's trying to go to sleep to her baby doll, you know? She's like, now, baby doll, you know you can do this by yourself, you know? You just need to close your eyes and stay still and relax and think nice, peaceful thoughts, you know? And I was thinking, wow, she's telling stories to baby doll, and it is sort of this instructional thing, you know, this idea of fictionalizing the world as a way to sort of deal with it in a separate, maybe easier way. I don't know. She's only two, by the way, so your five-year-old might have a little more insight than her. But if we back up, well, if we include uh, instruction in this, you know, if fiction is for delight and instruction, well, or if it's for entertainment, which is the first thing that I thought of on the most basic level, then why, uh, and this is something that I think about when I'm talking to my students a lot, too. Then, then why fiction, right? And I know that you'd mentioned this in an email, too. Why fiction as opposed to other entertaining forms, right? Film or art or dance or music. Uh, there are, you know, in, at its most basic level, in many ways, art is entertainment for us, and we, we have that thrill from it. But each form, you know, has its own special aspects, right? And so I started thinking about, well, why fiction, right? What, what is special about, about fiction? And I kept thinking about the fact that fiction asks more of the reader, I think, than almost 
any other art form asks of the person who's going to experience it. And what I mean is um, this contract between the reader and the writer, right? This thing where the reader says, like, okay, I want you to lie to me. I'm ready for you to lie to me. And the, and the, reader, the writer says, okay, I'm going to lie to you. Uh, I'm going to try to make it as believable as possible. And the reader's like, okay, I'm going to try to believe this, right? It's a very, it's a weird relationship, right? It's a very vulnerable position for the reader to put themselves in. You know how it's hard to start a book sometimes? Like, there's a book that you want to read, and you're like, uh, not yet, not yet. You know, like... It's totally weird, you know? I mean, I had a million books like that. And the thing is, I think it's like us getting in that position where we're like, okay, I'm ready, like, to accept you, book. Accept you, <laughs> author. And I'm ready to believe these ridiculous lies. I know these are crazy lies, but now I'm ready. And that, like, that coming to the text by the reader is, it's just a very prof profound relationship. And it necessitates that the reader rises to the level of the book, right? Which is part of the reward of reading, you know? As a writer, you know, you don't, you don't ever want to condescend to your reader. You always want to assume that your reader is smarter than you. And part of it is this payoff, right? That, you know, when you're reading something and you're like, oh, I get it! And you feel smart and good, you know? I, I don't get that feeling as much through other art forms that I feel are being spoon-fed to me in uh, an easier way. I mean, I mean, I get that feeling, yes, through other art forms, but not in a way that I have to come to it in the same way with literature, right? So it's this, this contract for me that uh, it's like a relationship. I mean, of course, you know, I was thinking about the relationship between writer and reader and thinking of like, well, of course, you know, writers, we sit in a room by ourselves all day and readers sit in a room by themselves all day, you know, like, of course, I'm thinking this is like, oh, this is an important relationship. But it is. It's encountering the brain on the page in a very sort of um, uh, very personal and, and vulnerable way, I think. Um, and so then... I was thinking about this reality versus fiction thing, right? And we always hear this uh, reality, you know, uh, truth is stranger than fiction. Well, of course it is, because <laughs> it can be, right? This is part of that contract. That thing, remember, where the reader says, like, I'm going to believe you. And as a writer, we say, like, okay, I'm going to come up with something believable. You know, truth can say, like, well, that's crazy. Yeah, but that's the way it is, you know? <laughs> like, well, just the way it is. Which... You know, I mean, I've run into this problem a million times, especially when I was a young writer. I'd write things that really happened, and people would say, like, well, this makes no sense. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, well, that really happened. It, it makes no difference because it's not believable, right? As soon as it enters the realm of fiction, all of a sudden we have to create something that somebody's going to believe. And so it's this, like, it... it and that believe is the key word there, right? Because that's what's part of that reader-writer contract that makes fiction special, that makes fiction, you know, stand sort of... It requires more work on both the part of the reader and the writer to experience fiction the way that it can best be experienced, that reality doesn't require. So I, this makes me feel special. <laughs> you know, right? Um, that's, what's fiction, but that's what fiction is for. But also... The other thing about reality versus fiction, 
you know, that this thing like, well, that's the way it is. It's crazy. Wow, the world is crazy, you know? I, marveling at the world is a wonderful thing. But marveling at something coming out of somebody's brain is sometimes even more amazing, right? That thing like, wow, somebody came up with this. Somebody, like... M- dreamt up this story about somebody falling in love and dying and I'm standing here, you know, sitting here reading it and crying and it's a lie, you know, that like, uh, there's something so profound in there that only belongs to fiction and there's, of course, storytelling happens in lots of different ways, right? Uh, fictional storytelling happens in lots of different ways. Drama, film, right? Those are the two that I'm thinking of right now. But, Again, those deliver visuals, those deliver audio. The reader doesn't have to bring that to the stage or to the screen. As a reader of fiction, we have to rise to the occasion. And it makes both the reader and the writer, you know, rise to a new level. And so, for me, fiction is for entertainment, but it's also for the highest level of entertainment that, like, as an artist, I've found that I can engage in. And it's not... Yeah, writing is alienating and, you know, lonely. But it's also like we're trusting that somebody else is going to rise to that occasion, which is crazy, you know. We're lucky that people do (laughs) when they rarely do. Um, But uh, for me, like, that, that is what fiction is for. It's for entertainment at that high strange, vulnerable, personal relationship level where we're connecting with the brain of somebody we've never met. We just see their words on the page. So, um, yeah. Awesome, you guys. Um, I want to open it up to the rest of you, because this probably... Do you guys think that's God? (laughs) I've been thinking about this. No? No. Hypothetically, Hypothetically, it's God. (laughs) Chiming in. (laughs) I've just been curious about that. Um, I would love to hear from you guys, and I'm going to restate any questions, um, because we need it for the podcast. Yes, Julie. Nick A or Nick B? Oh, sorry, what Nick B was saying, uh, Lori Sleeper, I believe it was, wrote a blog on the, uh, that secret blog that, that Lighthouse has. And I believe it was uh, something that David uh, Wurbanke had said and about how it's the art form where someone makes that contract, but you're going to spend hours with that artist. It's not, it's not a quick read. You can't walk through a gallery and say, oh, I really you know, truly love that. Or you go see a show and it's two hours, but when it's Lori, I don't know if you wrote about David Robleski saying this is a life. Oh, you did. She did. And David could David could actually speak. You don't want to speak. <laughs> Um, so the the gist of this is we're talking about actual time period spent with the work. You know, you don't spend two weeks with an art show necessarily or with a performance or a movie. Yeah. Um, any thoughts on that? 
Um, I guess um, I guess I'd go back to Sven Burkert's on that actually, um, and I have some more of what he said. Um, I'm not sure I, I totally agree with everything he says here, but I, I find it interesting. Um, this idea of the novel is gaining on me, that it is not except superficially only a thing to be studied in English classes, that it is a field for thinking, a condensed time world that is parallel or adjacent to ours, that its purpose is less to communicate themes or major recognitions and more to engage the mind, the sensibility, in a process that in its full realization bears upon our living as an ignition to inwardness, which has no larger end, which is the end itself. And then he just has this set of nouns, enhancement, deepening, priming the engines of conjecture, that it is inwardly experiential, intransitive, a mode of contemplation, its purpose being to create for the author and reader a terrain, an area of liberation where mind can be different, where mind and imagination can freely combine. And um, you need the space to do that. That's not something that can happen fast. That's um, and I mean he's he's on his hobby horse about the internet there he's <laughs> um, he doesn't like it he doesn't like Google and so he's saying basically this is this is something this is a this is an escape from that really fast world um, but there is something about that that you know when you you go into a fictional world um, and you 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 your brain is working differently than when it's just processing facts and information that you get on a daily basis and there's so it's that um thing that happens to time in fiction i guess um did you i've been thinking about this um thanks you know I, People say often, like, I, it's surprising that the short story isn't more popular. We have this um, short attention span population, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, well, novels are more popular than short stories, and I think part of it is that long-term uh, imaginative investment um, that when... And it comes back to also that thing that I was talking about, sort of rising to the task of reading a book. A lot of readers, if they want to read a book, they want to be able to re-enter that world for the next week, you know? Um, and so, like, that, it makes sense to me that people like or buy more novels than, you know, short stories. Of course, that hurts my soul because I write more short stories than novels, right? Um, but I, I think that long-term imaginative investment is... Uh, sort of like um, primary for what readers go to fiction for. And you're right, it is like there are very few other art forms that offer that. Well, I'm not right. I believe it was David. <laughs> well, <laughs> someone is right. I think somebody is right. Um, and, you know, I, it, it, I, this is also, you know, I have this thing sometimes when I read short story collections where, like, it, sometimes some of my favorite collections I'll pull out and I realize I haven't even read every story in the collection, right? It's because each story takes that new, like, okay, here I go again. I'm going to enter a new world, you know? And it's hard to enter a world. And so I think readers like to be in that world for a long time. But... Just to stand up for short stories, we are strong enough to rise to the occasion. At least 12 times in a book. You can do it. Yeah. I, I guess the, the thought that I'm having, and I'm probably not going to articulate this very well because I'm just, it's just occurring to me now, but that 
I mean, when I, when I came across that that phrase, um, you know, what is fiction for? It's for to delight and instruct. It struck me as sort of so simple it was idiotic. Um, but I think there's, there's like, I'm, I'm thinking now about the instruct part of that. Um, and, uh, you know, like, like Nick was, was saying that his, you know, his daughter was, was engaged in storytelling in part as, as a process of learning. And, um, and you know, a lot of, a lot of stories for, for children are, they incorporate that as, as an aspect of the story is learning and there are morals and there, or they're just literally things that, that you want them to learn out of the story. Um, and, you know, as adults, you sort of leave that behind in a way. But I think there's also, you know, the, I guess I'm thinking of how when you read a book, you can come out of it and feel like that book changed me. Like that book made me a different and better person. And that, that really doesn't happen with, with anything else. At least, I mean, you know, a great piece of music or something can kind of do that, but it's not, it's not for me at least, the, the, the deep level, like really feeling like I've been taken somewhere outside my own experience and I've learned something, you know, learned some wisdom from it. And um, it's, it's a, that, that ability to change the reader, I think, is, is one of the things that's unique about fiction and part of why it's written. We've got a couple questions. Do you want to? Oh, do you want me? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, Brad, and then we'll go back to Marie. Not to be contrarian, but a lot of, I think, what you said, I think what you said, I think you made a point about the time zone and stuff. I would think that people who are fans or readers of memoir would say much the same thing. And, and so I guess I, my question is sort of twofold. One, I don't disagree with what you're saying, but but how, does, how do you differentiate that between fiction and a big book of memoir that really could take a week three as well and take you into those different worlds that come away feeling like it changed you and you can instruct you and stuff like that. And then the, the sort of corollary question, what do you think that the is the meaning in terms of this discussion you're having of the growth in creative nonfiction means and this, this sort of ambiguous notion that, at least as I say, it seems to be developing around this idea of creative nonfiction. And how does that relate to the question? Let me restate. <laughs> Brad says... To be contrarian. No, he said not to be contrarian. Um, but he is being contrarian. Um, okay, so the time thing, the, the imaginative world. Same with nonfiction. You can spend weeks. And I, I remember one of the things David said in that brilliant blog post by Lori Sleeper um, is that some of the work, some of the time spent is also in dreaming and sleeping because it kind of takes over another part uh, of your mental space. And um, same with a good, well-written nonfiction book. Creative nonfiction is, is booming right now. What do you make of it? <laughs> Whoever one of you want to take... As for the first point... I mean, I sort of feel like that's what we've been talking about for the last half hour. I agree completely. A memoir also is a long-form storytelling, but those differences between reality and fiction, um, you know, I, I, it makes me experience the novel in a in a different way. It, well, I agree about the sort of you know engaging in that like that dream in between the action of reading 
and I just feel like I'm working at a higher level when it's fiction. But I'm not going to disagree. You know, I mean, I, I enjoy reading a long, interesting memoir for the same reason that I enjoy entering a fictional landscape for a long time. Um, in your second question, I once remembered several minutes ago. What was it? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, first of all, anytime I hear, like, you know, an argument about one form sort of ov overtaking the other, I just think, like, of the Greeks, you know? Like, I just never believe it, you know? Like, people have been telling the truth and telling fiction for, like, many, many decades. Um, <laughs> so, I, I don't... I, I don't... I don't know. I'm, pass, I'm passing the mic. <laughs> I guess I mean one thing that um, that occurs to me when when this this issue of the rise of nonfiction comes up is yeah you know if if nonfiction's so great then <laughs> then then why do why do the nonfiction writers you know James Fray being like the extreme example why do they feel like they have to fictionalize and yeah well it makes the story better that's why. Um, <laughs> And, you know, I mean, Frey is an extreme example, but I think, you know, it, it, it kind of comes back to also what Marilyn Robinson was saying about you, you almost can't, can't say anything very complicated without, without starting to falsify. Um, and, you know, and certainly in something as long as a, as a, as a memoir, you know, everyone knows there's a, there's an element of, of fictionalizing in, in, you know, like the long passage of dialogue, you know, he can't possibly remember all this. Um, and, but, you know, because it's labeled nonfiction, then you start to, you have those, you have that thought. You're like, well, I know that this isn't real. You know, I, I know that he's sort of making some of this up because he can't possibly remember it unless he had a tape recorder in his pocket for his entire life. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, I, I think, one of the you know part of the power of, of fiction is that it allows you to to abandon that 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 second guessing of everything, um, and it just asks for your belief and doesn't ask for that you you evaluate you're evaluating plausibility in a, in a different way with fiction um, and um, there was something else I was going to say that <laughs> just flew out of my head. Um, so, do you have anything? Just a brief thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, to to be a little contrary in myself, I think fashion is a big part of it. I just think, you, I mean, people. Aha! <laughs> I read your mind. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, things just start going on a track, and they keep going because everybody does what everybody else does. <laughs> yes. My example of that is, oh, I feel like a lot of what's written and published as as nonfiction now is what used to be called an autobiographical novel. You know, you look at like um, *The Comrade Angel* by Thomas Wolfe, and that's, you know, it's as I think it probably is close to to uh, truth as a lot of the memoirs that are published now. Um, and but but there's you know there's this greater sense of validation or whatever um, attached to, to nonfiction now. So you just you reclassify some of the books that um, 
for, I mean, basically for marketing reasons. Great. Um, Marie had one, and then we're going to get to all of the rest of you. <laughs> So we're going to change the inflection yes. once again. And yeah, why, why do you write fiction? And, and just for the podcast, Roland Barthes was brought up. <laughs> <laughs> and that suffices. <laughs> um, I think that's a really good point. Um, for me, um, writing fiction is the only way to get at some things that bug me. Um, and if I try to write them in nonfiction form, they just don't add up, and I find myself fictionalizing um, in order to say them better. Um, I, don't, I don't know how to be more concrete than that without being really too concrete. <laughs> so I guess I'll just pass it on. Yeah, I guess a couple things occur to me. One is one is that I feel like, at least within my writing life, I'm I'm a control freak, and um, like like Rebecca was saying, like it, when I try to write nonfiction, it really bugs me that I can't just change things a little bit to make it better. Um, and the other the other thing is that. Um, It's you know it's, it just it goes back to to reading and and what I loved as a kid and um, what I really loved you know I mean there's there's that deep deep love that you that I at least built up um, at at an early age for for books that that take me someplace. And I think this is part of it for me, is that take me someplace that I haven't been. And I want to be able to explore that in my writing, to be able to, to write about uh, ideas and conflicts and challenges and people that I'm not necessarily that engaged with in my, in my actual life. And, um, you know, I, there, there are things that I'm interested in exploring in my writing that I just, if I wrote it as non, you know, this is what happened to me around this topic, it wouldn't be very interesting, but I can, I can create a story around it that's interesting. So I'm glad you mentioned this, because I was thinking about this, too. I think the question, what is fiction for, is different when addressed to a reader or a writer. And I agree with Nick A. about the, the reading aspect of it. I mean, I think that goes for almost every author, where, like, 
I mean, the reason I wanted to write initially was I'd read something and think, wow, that was amazing. I want to make somebody feel that way, you know? And then I, I want to enact that same emotional response. Um, but then in doing so, as a writer, in the same way that Nick A. mentioned, going to worlds and places maybe that he doesn't in his daily life, um, I think that the author, and I, I think this goes for a lot of artists, um, we uh, present a challenge for ourselves and then create something that surprises us as, you know, as a creator. Um, and that's really rewarding for me and surprising and weird a lot of the time. I think, God, what the hell am I thinking, you know? Um, but that's, uh, you know, that's a thrilling thing to, I mean, I was actually thinking about it in um, regard to like athletes, you know, right? Like athletes put themselves in competition so they have to rise to a new level and do something amazing. And in a way, I sort of, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that we're like fiction athletes, but, you know, and we are like in putting ourselves in the role of an artist, we're asking ourselves to create something, and then that's a challenge that we have to rise to, and it's satisfying for the artist, you know? Um, but it, it is a different question for the reader, or for the writer. Actually, I, um, I, I, I want to follow up on what Nick A. said about um, basically going different places um, in, your, in your writing than you can go in your life, and doing or thinking about different things than you might think about in your daily life. Um, and I think this does go back to um, Vargas Llosa a bit. Um, just um, there is for me this feeling that my life is boring. <laughs> and um, I want to explore other places, other times, other people. Um, and um, this is maybe something that the memoir um, at its edges does too, I think, a little bit. You know, you can write a memoir that's also about, you know, far-flung members of your family. <laughs> um, but you're, you're grounded in that way. Um, and so I can write a novel that's set in Cuba. Um, not being Cuban, not having been there, not having lived during the time when it's set. Um, that's just incredibly heady stuff. And it's a, so, I mean, for me, it's a sort of an, um, I guess the way I think of it is an intensification of my life. I, I want more. <laughs> um, Catherine and then Emily. So 
the most successful memoirs we hear about are described as almost novelistic. Any takes on that? Maybe just one of you? Anybody feeling? I mean, I think it's a great point on its, on its own, but anybody want to echo? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it, it's all about good storytelling, right? And it, whether it's fiction or not fiction. If it's true, but it's about somebody staring at their wall and thinking about things and never interacting with anybody else, it's going to be just as uninteresting as a fictional story about somebody sitting in their room and staring at the wall and not interacting with anybody else. So I agree completely that uh, struggle, conflict, you know, the changing of character, all that is innate to good storytelling. Um, for me, it's that difference of, like, that's the first step, right? Is it a good story? Okay. Are humans going to be interested in it, right? Okay. It, and then it sort of divides into truth or fiction. Why are we interested in it? Because it's truth. Why are we interested in it if it's fiction? Um, so that's, that's what I would say. Yes, that's the first bar that every good story has to rise to. Love to get Emily in there, and then we're going to get April. Emily's wondering about good old-fashioned catharsis. Uh, has anything we've said precluded catharsis? Has anything that we've said precluded catharsis? The emotional, I think, the emotional impact of a narrative and the shape a narrative has, and the and that feeling of coming through something, um, I think that's the answer to those passages I was reading from David Shields earlier. But I, I just want to go to the, I want to go to the moment of revelation. And I just want every moment to be that nugget, that discursive nugget that I get. And why do I need to read all this extra claptrap that you know is just setting up this this insight? Um, and I think. That's because we're not, we don't only operate in the realm of thinking. <laughs> yeah. I, I, this isn't, well, I, I, you know, I, I think when I was talking about um, 
about learning from fiction. I, I think for me that th that's related to what you're talking about in catharsis. Um, your, your direction kind of what your, your question went in a different direction than I, I initially thought you were um, going to go. And w what I was initially thinking of was this, this question that one of my um, instructors used to ask. <laughs> it's, it's the worst question in the world. He, he, would, he would ask, um, you know, so you're going to write a book. And it's going to be in the bookstore. Why would why should anybody pick up your book when Anna Karenina is sitting there on the shelf, <laughs> and War and Peace and Moby Dick and um, yeah, I think I think about that a lot. And yeah, it's, that's sort of the question of not what's fiction for, but wh why keep writing fiction when there are already all these. Um, yeah, yeah. Who needs more fiction? Um, and I, I don't have a, <laughs> a great answer for that. I keep doing it for some reason. Um, I mean, I think part of it is that that you know, new fiction can speak to us in in different ways, and you know, coming out of a different period, and um, and then the just you know, every once in a while. Uh, a sort of new new genius comes along, and not that that's me, but that you know somebody who who understands reality and processes it in a in a different way than we've ever seen before, and that that again is that learning thing and catharsis. <laughs> so I just want to say one quick thing. I I agree with much of what Rebecca just said, and going back to David Shields, it reminded me that it seems to me his book should be called not Reality Hunger, but Good Writing Hunger, right? Because, well, yeah, bad fiction isn't interesting, but good fiction does all those things that he wants, right? Um, and especially voices, new voices that r arise and are, you know, telling new stories in new language, um, you know, because the language is always shifting. So, I don't know. I wish David Shields was here. <laughs> when, when he was, when he, David, in the quote from David Shields, he was talking about how he feels like every novel is predictable. He can, you, you know, he can see every move coming. And I, part of me feels like, well, you know, that's just some. That's part of that is just someone who's read so much that. I mean, I have that feeling too sometimes. And, um, but you know, most readers aren't aren't at that that level where they've they've read so much fiction that they they can anticipate the moves. And then the other thing is that again when it's really good you lose you, you don't see the you know that you don't see things coming or you you don't care because there's there are other things going on that that are moving to you. And April, I'm getting to you now. Fiction gives us the meaning that comes at the end of the sentence with the punctuation. What do you guys think? This will be our last thought um, of the evening. Any additional final thoughts to go with April? 
I, I, I think that's exactly right. That that um, you know, a part of the function of fiction is to to give a to to take all this. I mean, it, it, I guess part of it for me comes back to 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 narrative, and that that so much of how we process information is is through narrative. You know, narrative is the process of relating one thing to the next, and and a lot of times the stuff we see going on around us does doesn't seem to make much sense. And fiction is part of it is um, a way to to create patterns that make some sense out of the stuff we see going on around us. And you know, one of the great things when you read a book is that moment when you're like. Oh yeah, I, that makes sense now. Like I've seen that going on in life, and I, I recognize it, and somebody articulated it, and that I mean that's one of those moments that's really wonderful in a book. Fiction will save us all from the abyss. <laughs> the abyss. Um, I want to thank you all for being here tonight. The the volunteers, the lighthouse volunteers. <laughs> Simple Sugar Bakery. Uh, the Lighthouse Board and faculty. Thank you. You guys were amazing. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast. We bring this to you thanks to Lighthouse members and funders and listeners like you who support the cause. We are grateful to the SCFD Tier 3 for their support. More information on Lighthouse Writers Workshop and opportunities for involvement can be found on our website at www.lighthousewriters.org.